Good morning, my name is Nick Swan, I'm the Associate Pastor here at Grace, and this morning we're going to be continuing our First Peter series entitled Elect Exiles, and the title of this morning's message is Set Apart for a New Life. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, thank you that we are not who we once were, that united with you in your death and resurrection we are new, we're new creations who live new lives. Father, may we set aside all of our former passions and may we, by your spirit, be empowered to live as your elect chosen people. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I was studying this passage this week, I thought a good bit about mankind's desire for a fresh start. We always want to be renewed and to get a new crack at life. We desire a new birth, if you will. We think of the concept of catharsis or something being cathartic. This that we could somehow emotionally purge ourselves and through that process be renewed and changed. If you think of the concept of reincarnation, that born again and again and again, this process that somehow through this whole reincarnation process we could eventually reach perfection. Even simple things like New Year's resolutions or self-help books, they point to this desire to remake ourselves. We're always looking for a new beginning, a fresh start, the opportunity to shed who we once were and become better versions of ourselves. There's something deep inside each and every one of us that, that pushes us to improve, to perfect ourselves. And this it push, it points to an underlying condition, that we are imperfect people and yet we know that we are made for perfection. And so we're on this constant journey, this quest that we are to put off this imperfect way in which we live and we are to become more and more perfected human beings. Here's the problem. Our attempts at self-improvement, they're too shallow. They're not deep enough. No New Year's resolution, no self-help book could possibly solve the problem of our imperfection. We need something far deeper we need to be renewed spiritually. We need to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's a much more profound transformation that is required to do away with our old way of living and to be renewed again as God's perfect people. Our passage this morning points us to Jesus' death and his resurrection and how through this death and resurrection that we are brought to a new relationship with God. It also connects the work of Christ to our baptism, that we have died and we've been made anew, that we are not who we once were, we've been made new creations in Christ. And also it points to this new life that's inside of us. We are not who we once were, therefore we do not live as we once lived. We now live lives of holiness. The main point this morning is this, all those who have believed in Jesus have been baptized into his death and his resurrection and are called to lives of holiness as we await our resurrection hope. All those who have believed in Jesus have been baptized into his death and his resurrection and are called to live lives of holiness as we await our resurrection hope. We have two points this morning. The first is the meaning of our baptism and the second is living out our baptism. The meaning of our baptism and living out our baptism. So this first point, it's going to be a good bit longer. So when I'm a ways into the message and I'm still on the first point, don't freak out. The second point will be much smaller. And here's the reason why. These first several verses, 18 to 22, they're really tricky verses. So we're going to take some time 
to really work through them. And this passage, it's the type of passage that you read as a pastor in preparation and you think, I have no idea actually what this means. And so then you turn to commentators who you think are the smart guys who are going to help you figure this out. And then they give you seven or eight ways you could possibly think about this. And then at the end of it, they say, but we're not really quite sure what this means. So it's a tricky passage. I was looking for help and I didn't find it. But I do think I figured out how to work us through uh, this passage. Um, But rather than get into all of the weeds of these arguments, what I'm going to try and do is take us one step up, help us to see the forest for the trees. And I believe, even though it's a complex message and a complex passage that there are going to be real truths that we can apply to our lives. So stick with me as we move through this passage. So here it goes. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The 5th century theologian Augustine refers to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper as visible words. Meaning baptism, the Lord's Supper, these sacraments, they they make visible or tangible the invisible words or the invisible promises of the gospel. Therefore, if we're going to talk about the meaning of baptism, we need to back up from the sign and seal of baptism to the meaning of the gospel, which baptism makes visible. So we have a brief but wonderful explanation of the gospel in verse 18. And it begins with, Christ suffered for sins. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, he became a man, and he suffered for us in two ways. First, it was a suffering for him to simply take on human flesh and enter into a human and broken world. He suffered by simply coming to the earth on our behalf. And then he suffered in a more pointed way, and that he not only suffered by coming to earth, he suffered at the hands of all of us, wicked humanity, who ultimately rejected him as the Son of God, convicted him unjustly, and then handed him over to be crucified by the Roman authorities. Now, why was this necessary? Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? It was necessary because in order for us to be made right with God, we had to deal with the problem of sin. And we needed someone to represent us to suffer in our place. So how did Christ accomplish this? How did he suffer in our place? Christ, who was perfect in righteousness, he exchanged himself. So this is the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ took our sins upon himself. He then suffered dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. Our sins were placed upon him so that we might have his righteousness. Now what was the purpose of this exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous? Well, it says in our verse that it was to bring us to God. Our sin had separated us from God. There was a chasm between us and God that had to be dealt with. And so Christ, the righteous one, exchanged himself for us, the unrighteous, and took our penalty. He eliminated the barrier. He took away the separation that had pulled us away from God because of our sin and our rebellion. In other words, he brought us to God. Note also the word once. Suffered once for sins. This word points to the utter sufficiency of what Christ has done. Through Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for us, we now have right standing with God. And we don't need to add to this in any way. It's not Christ plus what we do. It's not Christ plus our acts of holiness and contrition. It's not us turning to any other saviors. What Christ has done is sufficient. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. What he had done was once for all sufficient 
to purchase salvation for us. Now these last two phrases of verse 18, they outline the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his humiliation and his exaltation. Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus in the flesh, as our representative, was put to death in our place. On the third day, he rose again from the dead by the power of the spirit, showing that he had conquered sin and death. And he did so to purchase for us a once for all salvation on the cross. In this one verse, we have a snapshot of the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through his death and his resurrection, the righteous for the unrighteous, we have been brought to God. And it's this salvation that baptism signifies. But before we get to baptism in verse 21, this is where it gets a little tricky, Peter takes us to this Old Testament example. So we've got 18, which is the gospel, 21, which is baptism, and then he's going to take us through this passage about Noah that's going to explain the meaning of baptism, make a connection between the gospel and baptism. So Jesus in the Spirit, look with me again, verse 19, this is what he did. He went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now these verses, these are the verses where we could get into the weeds and be lost there for quite some time. So for the sake of clarity and brevity, typically I like to show my work. Pastor, this is what the verse says, here's how we interpret it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase for you what I think these verses mean. If you have questions about all the different ways this could be looked at, just email me. I'll happily send you some of the commentaries that I read. But for the sake of clarity, I'm going to paraphrase what I believe these mean so that I can make a connection between baptism and the gospel. So here's a paraphrase to make sense. By the Holy Spirit, Christ preached through Noah to the rebellious people of Noah's day who are now spirits in prison. These are the ones who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Those who did not rebel but believed eight in total, Noah and his family, were brought through the flood safely in the ark. All right, so that's my paraphrase of those verses. So why does Peter go here? Why does he go to Noah and the flood to illustrate this point about the gospel and baptism? And there are a couple of reasons. First... It makes clear that the salvation that God offers is always something that is received by God's people by faith. Throughout the, the Bible, God makes promises to his people. And throughout the Bible, in order for us to have those promises, we have to receive them by faith. So Noah and his family, they were saved because they believed God. When he said there's going to be a flood and the world is going to be judged and you need to build this ark in order to be saved, they received those promises by faith and therefore were saved in the ark. The second thing we learn is that God throughout the Bible uses these instances of salvation through faith to point forward or to foreshadow what Christ ultimately came to do for us. The flood of God's judgment and the ark of God's salvation, they point forward to the gospel message found in Christ. To, to tie this up, Christ suffered in the flood of God's wrath and judgment and he passed through that flood in order to offer us salvation in the ark. There's a connection between the flood waters of God's judgment and the ark of salvation. Jesus Christ taking the flood waters of God's judgment and saving us through the ark of his person and work. All right, now the connection to baptism. 
Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Noah and the flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism signifies several things. We had a baptism last week, and it signifies the outpouring of God's spirit. It signifies uh, being purified and washed. And so that's why, as Presbyterians, we take water and we, we pour it over someone in order to sprinkle their conscience clean and to wash them of their sin. And pictures the outpouring of the spirit. There are, is another meaning to baptism, which is a picture of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. So in some other denominations, you will see people that are immersed in water. And it's that picture of immersion that is the clearer connection to what Noah and the flood represent. So here's the connection to Noah. When someone is fully immersed, it's a picture of death. It's a burial in water, in the flood waters of God's judgment. United with Christ, they're buried with Christ. They are then united with him in his resurrection. They, they come out of the tomb, the burial in the flood waters, and they are a new creation. Their, their old selves have died, and their new selves are raised to newness of life, united with Christ in his burial and his resurrection. The flood and the ark, they, they point forward to Christ. They give meaning to the waters of baptism. The flood corresponds to baptism. United with Christ, we are buried with him in God's judgment, and we are raised with him by faith to resurrection life. So now the question is, what does baptism exactly do? Look at verse 21 again. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, as if Peter hadn't thrown us enough curveballs, he now makes this statement that says, baptism saves you. It's a little confusing. So does baptism save us? If you come up after this service and I, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I take some water and I put it on, does that save you? Is that it? You get baptized as a kid, you get baptized as an adult, you're good, ticket, heaven. Live how you, is that how this works? No. I see heads. No, no. The key phrase that helps us understand baptism's connection to salvation is it functions as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism in and of itself, it does not save. Otherwise, we would be saved by faith in Christ plus something, plus baptism. And we just read that it's a once for all. What he has done is sufficient. We don't add to it, even with the work of baptism. Then what is baptism all about? If baptism doesn't save, then it, it must be something else. And here's what it is. It signifies the truth of the gospel that you and I must believe in order to be saved. Think of it this way. Baptism is a visible representation of the gospel. When I preach the gospel word, which baptism signifies, is it enough simply for you to hear those words preached? Is that enough? Or do you have to do something in order to respond to that? You have to what? You have to receive the gospel word preached. In a similar way, it's not just the application of water that saves. It is a reception of the promises that that water Represents Just as we respond to the spoken word of the gospel, we must respond to the water applied in baptism. We must receive those promises by faith and therefore be saved by faith alone and the promises represented there. And this promise of salvation to all who believe comes with a guarantee. Like all promises, this promise is, is, promise is only as good as the person making the promise, who makes the guarantee. And in this case, the one making the promise... Is Jesus. 
At the end of verse 21, who was resurrected from the dead, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We can have confidence in the gospel word preached and in the gospel word signified in baptism because the one who is making those promises has died for us, risen for us, has ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father and will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. He makes those promises and we can bang, you get bang on our buck for those promises. He will deliver on every word that he says. We can have confidence because he rules and reigns over all authorities in the heavenlies. All right, it's a tough passage. I've been drinking a bit from the fire hose. Thank you for sticking with me. Uh, now the key question is, Nick, why, why does this matter? How does this apply to my life? First, I think these verses give us assurance. When you become a new member at Grace, we ask you a number of questions, but two of them uh, there are two in particular I want to highlight. The first one is this. If you were to die suddenly, are you sure you would go to heaven? The second is, if God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what reason would you give? These two questions, they're getting at this idea of what's the basis of your hope? What's your assurance that you are truly saved? And the verses we've just covered, they give us the assurance, the basis of our hope. Our one and only hope is faith in Jesus Christ, which has been given to us in the gospel in verse 18, and which has been sealed to us in our baptism, confirming that what God's invisible word says that he will do in physical ways through our resurrection from the dead. And when we stand before God, our only to appeal to God is for our good conscience, which comes to us through faith in Christ. When we stand before God, we can cling to verse 18 that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When we stand before God, we're not going to appeal to him saying, Here's all, here are all the things that I've done for you. Here's how I lived a perfect life. Here's why I deserve to be in heaven. The only reason that we will have to appeal to God is that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, exchanged himself for us, the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And it's by faith alone in that promise that we can have assurance that Christ will allow us to enter into heaven. This is our hope and this is our assurance. It's been spoken to us in the gospel and it's been sealed to us in the sacrament of baptism. Second, these verses, they're a warning. Physical baptism isn't what saves. It's a sign, it signifies it, it seals it, it promises it, but it points us to, us to promises that we must receive. Hearing the gospel isn't enough. Receiving Christian baptism isn't enough. So often we comfort ourselves with our proximity to the things of God. It's not enough to simply be here, to hear these things, to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not enough that you were baptized as a child. That's not what saves us. What saves us is faith in the promises of the gospel given to us. Have you received the gospel? Not just hearing it, but receiving it. Building your life upon it. Placing your faith in Christ. Have you received it? Young people, have you received baptism and you're kind of gliding through life? Your baptism won't save you. Faith in Christ will save you. 
For all who have believed, you will be delivered through the floodwaters of God's judgment. You will be saved in the ark of Christ. You will have the salvation hope offered through Jesus Christ by believing it with faith. Now the change brought about through salvation pictured in baptism, it's profound. It's profound. It's nothing less than spiritual death being brought into spiritual life. New people, new creations, the old buried and the new raised. And united with Christ, our old selves have died and we are now born again to a living hope. And this brings us to our second point very briefly, living out our baptism, living out our baptism. Let's start unpacking for one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what Peter does here is he starts with that first half of that death and resurrection that he pointed to in verse 18, where it says being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. He talks about suffering or being put to death in the flesh. And what he's pointing at is that as we begin to live out the gospel message, as we live out our baptisms, there is a death that takes place in each and every one of us. It's a death of our old selves. It's a death of the sin that used to imprison us. And it's a death that leads us to cease from our sin. Now this death through our old way of living, it leads us to verses 2 and 3. Look at there with me. Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been set apart to a new way of living. And it's been signified in our baptism that we've been marked as God's people, receiving a visible sign and seal that you belong to God. You have died to your old way and you've been raised to a new way of living. But not only do we die to an old way of living when we put off our former sins, we also join Christ in the suffering of his flesh because we are rejected by a watching world. Verse 4, with respect to this, this new way of living, they, the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now this word malign, it's strong. It's the same word as blaspheme. They shame you, disrespect you, demean, denigrate, slander, and revile you. So this, this death, it's a twofold death. It's a dying to our old way of living, which is dying. There are passions in this world we used to live for and we still want to live for. And we're called to die to those passions. But we also die when the world maligns us for living holy and upright lives. So in order to enable us to endure this suffering... Peter points us to the hope of the resurrection. Verse 5. But they, the world who maligns us, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, the, the world doesn't live in fear of judgment. They don't care. They don't think there is a judgment. So for them, it's perfectly rational to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why not live it up? Why not have all the passions of this life? But Peter points us to a future judgment that reframes how we are to live this life. 
he points to a day when all that we are suffering will one day be vindicated. Just like Noah, who for a hundred years was building an ark, suffering and working and being mocked, he believed that one day there would be a moment when that faith would be paid off, that there would be an ark when that flood came that would save him and his family from judgment. And Peter points us in a similar way to a future resurrection hope, one that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that is kept in heaven for us. And with this future hope in view, we can face mockery. We can face the daily dying to the passions of this world because we know that the suffering we're encountering today will be far outweighed by the glory yet to come. In the meantime, though, living as God's elect exiles in the world, we are called to embrace our new life in Christ while we wait through faith. We wait every day when we put off those passions that that war against our souls, and we wait for a future hope that will vindicate that suffering. We wait each and every day when, when the world mocks us for not joining them in their debauchery. We wait knowing that the future that awaits us, when Christ comes again, will so far outweigh any suffering, temporal suffering in this life, that it is more than worth it to take on the temporary pain. And when our faith wavers, which it will... We cling to God's promises that are made visible to us in our baptism. By faith, we've been united with him. We've died. By faith, we have been raised to new life. And it points forward to a day when that resurrection life will be fully ours, when Christ will return for his people. This is our hope. It's the hope of the gospel, and it's the hope signified and promised to us in our baptism. Because all those who have believed in Jesus have been baptized into his death and resurrection and are called to lives of holiness as we await our resurrection hope. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that opens up your word. I pray, Father, that we would cling to the promises of your gospel, that you, the righteous one, through Christ, have exchanged yourself for us and that by faith in him we have been brought to you. And Father, I pray that in the moments when we suffer, that we would cling to the promises made visible in our baptisms, that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And just as he passed through death to life, you will one day bring us from death to life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.